This is the third episode of our 2021 BMJ SDI podcast series. My name is Fabiola Martin and I'm the BMJ SDI podcast editor and clinical academic in sexual health medicine here in Brisbane, Australia. This podcast will focus on COVID vaccination and people who live with HIV. With me here today are Professor Anna Maria Goretti, Dr. Laura Waters and Mr. Simon Collins. Thank you for joining me. Anna Maria, how are you? Hello, Fabiola. Very well and very happy to be here with you and Laura and Simon today. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about your scope of work, please? I'm a professor of virology here in the UK. Um, most relevant to this uh, podcast is that uh, I also chair the British HIV Association, BIVA, panel uh, that produces guidelines on immunization in people with HIV. And uh, thank you so much, Anna Maria, for making time for us. And Laura, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, Fabiola. Also very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And could you tell us a little bit about your vast scope of work? Uh, sure thing. So I'm, I'm a um, consultant physician in sexual health and HIV. I'm also current chair of the British HIV Association. Um, and my role, pending the formal guidance that Anna Maria is leading on, I've been helping Beaver produce interim statements and advice for clinicians and for people living with HIV about the COVID vaccine and also COVID disease as new data has emerged. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for making time. Finally, Simon, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks, Fabiola. It's really, really good to be here. And I'm not going to try to summarize your scope of work. Could you give us a little summary, please? Okay, so uh, I'm HIV positive and has been for probably since the 1980s. Uh, uh, since the mid 90s, I've been on treatment, lucky enough to be caught by treatment. Uh, and I run a treatment organisation uh, where we track the research. So I get very excited about, about writing about treatment and, and working as a patient advocate. Uh, and for most of the last year, I've been also covering the, uh, the news about coronavirus and COVID-19. Uh, and uh, I know far more about it than I ever really wanted to. Oh, well, thank you for joining us and for sharing your knowledge with us. Starting with Anna Maria, um, I was wondering if you could please provide us with a brief outline of the different authorized SARS-CoV-2 or COVID vaccines worldwide, really. Do you, is it possible for you to give us a brief summary of what we have out there? Sure, yes. Uh, we have several vaccine types. Um, these include the uh, mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer or the Moderna, um, adenovirus vectored vaccines like the AstraZeneca, the Johnson & Johnson and the uh, Gamaleya Sputnik uh, vaccine. We also have protein or uh, subunit vaccines like the Novavax and um, some inactivated vaccines like the Sinovac, Coronavac. So quite a few uh, vaccine types um, have been developed and um, vaccines such as those authorized in Europe, uh, North America, Australia, um, have been tested, these vaccines have been tested in many thousands of people and shown to be safe and uh, efficacious. 
Um, I would say that the, the, the efficacy has been ranging um, in different studies from um, around 50% to 95%. But uh, when we think about these figures, I think it's important uh, to keep in mind that there's been no uh, direct head-to-head -head, uh, comparison uh, between the different uh, vaccine uh, types. And also the studies have been run under different um, epidemiological scenarios. But what I really would like to point out, uh, Fabiola, is that um, um, not all attempts at developing an effective vaccine against COVID-19 have been successful. Some um, had to be shelved or um, perhaps you know, required more work before they could become um, effective vaccines. So um, we have all these different vaccine types, um, efficacious, safe. We've been very lucky. Uh, that, um, in fact, the very first vaccines uh, that we developed have shown such high efficacy. Mm. And uh, finally, I would also like to say that the, the authorized vaccines you asked me about, they, they've shown uh, so far the promise of uh, really remarkable efficacy against the severe COVID-19. So they can keep people out of hospital, they can stop people from dying. Um, and, and, and I say promise, uh, because we need, of course, longer follow-up data, um, and also because not all studies have included uh, sufficiently diverse populations in terms of age, ethnicity, or range of underlying conditions, including HIV. Yes, yes. I, that was, I think, one of the biggest surprises, that the first ones were showing such great, you know, promising outcomes. And uh, I know that, you know, we can't go to all the different details of the vaccines, but could you pick a few that are important and tell us how they work? Yes, they, they, they have um, quite a common um, sort of strategy, although they, um, the way they pursue their strategy is different. Um, so the, the, we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, is studied uh, with a protein called spike. And the virus uses the spike to enter uh, human cells. Um, so one shared feature, uh, feature of uh, mRNA, adenovirus vectors, and also the protein vaccines that have been authorized is that they aim to induce an immune response against this specific uh, component of the virus, the, the, the spike. Um, vaccines do help the body to recognize the spike protein as, a, as something foreign. Uh, and build up defenses uh, so that um, then the body can react rapidly um, against uh, the infection when um, the actual virus is seen uh, by the uh, immune system. So the defenses, these immunodefenses are antibodies that can block the virus from entering the cells, the so-called neutralizing antibodies, and also responses mediated by a type of uh, blood cells called T cells. We know that neutralizing antibodies are uh, crucial in protecting against infection, but we are also learning that T cells um, are uh, also playing a key role against uh, the COVID-19 uh, disease. So if we now consider how these uh, different vaccines uh, work, um, we see that in the case of uh, mRNA vaccines uh, specifically, uh, for example, they instruct the uh, body on how to make uh, the spike protein. They uh, bring the message for uh, the uh, spike protein uh, to the uh, body and instruct it to make it so that uh, the body then can see uh, the, uh, the protein 
Of course, they instruct the body to make only the protein and not the full virus. Um, with the adenovirus vectored uh, vaccines, um, uh, we use a harmless virus, uh, the adenovirus, as a shuttle to bring in the body the message for uh, making the protein. In the case of uh, protein or subunit uh, vaccines, uh, the protein is delivered to the body uh, within um, a particle that is called nanoparticle that mimics uh, the virus uh, itself. Um, we also have some other vaccine types which are um, made in a more uh, traditional way. These are uh, the inactivated vaccines that uh, take a, a killed virus particle um, and bring it to the body again to uh, induce an immune response. Fantastic. That was a very quick summary of very complex data. Thank you, Anna Maria. Laura, can I ask you a little bit about, you know, trial data and, you know, trial efficacy, safety data, but specifically on people who live with HIV? I'm, I know that a lot of people are looking forward to receiving that specific information on that subgroup. Do we have any? And if we do, how would you help us interpret those? Sure. And, and obviously, it's a really important question. And as Anna Maria has already said, the sort of lack of diversity in the initially studied populations uh, is an important issue. And of course, there's lots of work ongoing to address that. Now, for people with HIV, the data is really limited uh, and it's really hard to draw very specific conclusions. But people living with HIV have received all of the major vaccines. And as far as we know, there's been no major safety concerns to date. I guess really we have to think about the principles of, of vaccines and thinking about vaccines for other conditions where there are no additional safety concerns for people with HIV either. So really the only major issue for safety in people with immunocompromised, including people with HIV, are live vaccines. And of course we know none of the vaccines studied to date have been live. So just based on the principles and everything we've learned about other conditions, then in theory there would be no major safety concerns. I guess the other important issue is the efficacy, and it remains possible that people with HIV will mount a less strong or less durable response to the vaccines. However, that doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't be protective. And I think what's emerging is that even when the levels of antibody production are less, the protection can still be high. So again, as far as we know, the vaccines work. As data emerges, of course, things will evolve, including the guidance. And if that means an extra booster in the future for some people with HIV or other conditions that affect response, then that's what will happen. But we're confident that safety and effectiveness are not majorly impacted by HIV. And of course, what that means is we strongly recommend the vaccine for all people living with HIV. Fantastic. And that takes me easily to the next question, which is, is there a group of people who live with HIV that we should worry more or is it safe for everybody? So that's one of the questions that people come up with. So again, from a safety perspective, the answer is no, that there are no factors, uh, antiretroviral treatment, CD4 and viral load, other comorbidities. There's nothing that would make us more concerned about giving the vaccine. It's, it's recommended for everybody. I guess the important issue is prioritization. So are there any characteristics of people with HIV that mean they should be prioritized for vaccine? And again, I think the initial data, which was reassuring that there was no impact 
of HIV or mortality has now been challenged by better design studies, importantly adjusting for age. Some of the early studies didn't adjust for age. And actually in a number of cohorts, including some great work from the UK, we can see there is an impact of HIV on COVID related mortality. Now, how much of that is driven by unrecognized or under adjusted confounders, occupation and socioeconomic factors and the like, but it remains that people with HIV are at a higher risk. So I think most guidelines are prioritising people with HIV. Uh, certainly in the UK, people with HIV are in a higher priority group in our vaccine rollout. And for people with very low CD4 counts who aren't undetectable, but crucially people who've got other factors that increase their risk. So people with HIV who are older, have diabetes, have other factors uh, that the patient and clinician are concerned they may be at higher risk, then we prioritise them further so we can put them into an even higher priority group. So they are vaccinated earlier, but everybody should have the vaccine. Yes, absolutely. Everyone should have the vaccine and everyone should have the two doses. Fantastic. So in your opinion, what would be a facilitator or you know, a barrier to patients receiving vaccine, to people, clients receiving vaccines? I, mean, I think in general, um, of course, there's always been some fears and concerns, uh, many unfounded uh, in the general public about vaccines in general. And I think COVID's come along at a time where, thanks to social media, there, there is a, a lot of circulating concerns and fears. Um, and, and of course, that applies to people living with HIV as well. Um, and I think there's been, you know, quite a bit of work looking at populations who are particularly fearful of vaccination and certainly thinking about the UK. Uh, there's been some work showing some black communities um, are particularly concerned about the safety and effectiveness of, of vaccines. So I think really it's about getting accurate information out there. The other issue is, is access um, and accessing healthcare in general. And again, speaking of the UK, for example, at the moment, people need to be registered with a, with a GP or a family doctor, and there's work ongoing to try and, and broaden access in that respect. But accurate information, challenging myths as they emerge, so one of the things that, that uh, I'm sure Simon will tell us about and the work of iBase in terms of addressing concerns about vaccines, but ensuring we have consistent messages and advocates. What's great in the UK is we've had some people themselves living with HIV being very open and, and promoting the vaccine that they've received and that kind of messaging helps as well. So one of the things I guess you want people to know is that you know GPs shouldn't screen people for being posit HIV positive unless they're prioritizing them for vaccination rather than being worried about their immune system or their reactions. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if a GP is seeing someone and they don't know their HIV status and they've not tested, we'd encourage HIV testing anyway at, at any time, not just because of COVID. But absolutely, there's HIV itself, HIV treatment, they are not barriers to receiving the vaccine. I think the, the, the main situation where HIV becomes really important is in the very, very sick people who are admitted to hospital. And there, the additional issues in terms of maintaining HIV treatment and thinking about interactions with some of the other medications used in critically ill people those are really important but really bar that people with HIV should be treated in exactly the same as everyone else and offered the vaccine. Fantastic Laura thank you so much that takes me easily to Simon and my next question. Simon uh, do people who live with HIV worry about being vaccinated if yes uh, what are the worries and why do they worry? 
Uh, well, I think prob probably, like most people, people living with HIV actively want protection from the vaccine. So the biggest worry is uh, whether they're going to be vaccinated, when they're going to get vaccinated, a little bit maybe about the circumstances. So we get used to getting really good care from our HIV doctors. Uh, and so, uh, so some people are worried about the setting and whether they need to disclose about HIV, which isn't necessary at all. Um, we follow the news, we see the you know, really high levels of protection that all the vaccines give, uh, even with recent questions about variants. Uh, and so probably, even though we're not, we're not a single group, uh, the majority of people are probably actively wanting protection from the vaccine. We worry about, we worry about coronavirus, we see the risks around us, uh, we know that, that, that COVID-19 is a little bit more risky if you're HIV positive. Uh, we are at slightly higher risk of, of worse outcomes at younger ages. Uh, and so the delay about getting the vaccine is probably the biggest concern. I understand. And is there something that healthcare professionals can do to support people who live with HIV to receive the vaccine? Um, that's a good question, yes. So for a health worker, I guess, whose practice doesn't normally involve HIV, then uh, just please just treat us with the same respect that you give to your other patients, um, which I hope would be good. Uh, people living with HIV don't have special medical needs. Uh, there's no concerns you need to particularly worry about. We can be vaccinated like everybody else. Uh, we are coming to you for a vaccine, for a COVID vaccine. We want to be treated with care and respect like your other patients. Uh, and we also be aware that some HIV positive people will be getting care from somewhere that's new to them. And so please respect our confidentiality as this is also, this is also really important. Great, great. This is, this is all a list, good list of facilitators, isn't it? For access and especially to come back for the second dose. And um, apart from vaccination, how can people living with HIV protect themselves from the COVID-19 infection? So vaccines are good, but what else should people do or continue doing, Simon? Although it's perhaps obvious, maybe the, as you said, like strengthening the recommendation that it takes time for coverage to, to develop. You know, so, you, so you don't get any cover for the first couple of weeks from the first vaccine, uh, but then it takes, you know, for full protection, you have to wait for a couple of weeks after the second vaccine. And so to be careful, you know, all the way, you know, during the, the, the vaccine schedule, uh, best advice is still to be careful. Uh, we need to still wear masks. We need to follow social distancing. We need to uh, continue hygiene, hand washing, etc. cetera. Uh, and, uh, to sort of also be careful, if, even a couple of weeks after the second vaccine, to still be aware that maybe our protection might not quite be as, uh, as high as, as the general population, I guess, if we've had a low CD4 count. But, but this, this, this data will come later, really. Be careful with uh, risks for yourself and for the people around you, really. Thank you, Simon. With this, we're coming to the end of our podcast, but I just want to give everybody one more opportunity to say maybe something that you want to, you know, the uh, listeners to, to go home with, one additional comment. If I could start with Simon again. The, the COVID response is, is a community response, uh, and that includes having good, accurate, up-to-date information. Uh, 
talk to your friends, tell people about this podcast, uh, make sure you stay up to date with the news. Uh, and we have good vaccines and we really need to make sure that uh, everyone can benefit from them. Thank you, Simon. And Laura? I think mine would be um, based on personal experience, having had the Oxford vaccine in a trial, but then actually getting COVID earlier this year, is reminding people that vaccination won't stop COVID completely. It doesn't mean the vaccines don't work. There is evidence they will impact transmission. But as Anna Maria said, the key thing is they're stopping people getting sick. They're stopping people getting hospitalized. So knowing someone who's had the vaccine yet still had COVID doesn't mean they're not effective. I consider the fact I had a very mild illness uh, thanks to the Oxford vaccine. So COVID will still happen, but the severe cases and importantly, the deaths will be dramatically reduced. Fantastic, Laura. And now, Anna Maria, do you have a take home message for us, please? Well, Fabiola, I think we should mention uh, the um, new condition that has uh, been identified as uh, uh, linked to the use of the AstraZeneca. Uh, adenovirus-vectored uh, vaccine. Uh, this is called the vaccine-induced thrombosis and uh, thrombocytopenia. Um, it's a very rare condition. It consists of uh, clots uh, that form in the veins, uh, predominantly in the brain, um, although um, there have been cases where the clots occurred in other veins, for example, uh, those of the abdomen. This is, as I said, a very rare condition and a link has been proposed with the use of the um, AstraZeneca adenovirus uh, vectored vaccine, although whether it occurs also um, rarely, but it occurs also in association with other adenovirus vectored vaccines is uh, currently under investigation. Ah, thank you. And just briefly, are there any predisposing factors we should look out for? Well, um, we are still obviously trying to understand this condition. Uh, we know that uh, it is um, due to an autoimmune uh, reaction, uh, formation of an antibody against uh, a, a body protein called uh, platelet factor uh, 4. Uh, we know that um, cases of uh, VITT have been seen predominantly in women below the age of 55. However, this may simply reflect um, the uh, use of the vaccine um, in certain groups and cases have been seen also in men. However, generally speaking, it is felt that the condition tends to occur predominantly perhaps uh, in uh, people of younger age groups. And this explains why um, health authorities have taken the precautionary measure um, in some countries to restrict use. So for example, in the UK, um, the vaccine is not recommended now below the age of 30. In other countries, uh, the uh, cutoff has been set at 55 or uh, 60, for example. Thank you so much. And um, I want to thank you all for uh, joining us. Thank you, uh, Anna Maria, Simon and Laura for joining the BMJ STI uh, team to put this podcast together. I'm very grateful to our listeners for listening in today. And yes, please, the message is people who live with HIV should access vaccine, should take the second dose and should continue protecting themselves 
and their loved ones as much as they can through social distancing and personal hygiene and whatever uh, the latest recommendations are. With this, I say goodbye and stay safe.